Hello, and welcome to Laidback Lush, a little podcast where we talk about wine, beer, and spirits. I'm Michael, a former wine sales associate and former vineyard worker. And I am Gabe. I am WSET Level 3 certified, and I am an administrator for a wine and spirits educating body. And uh, today we are going to be talking about something that we both decided needed to be uh, redone. Redone. Because we went back and listened to our uh, our old episodes on, in preparation for our anniversary episode, and there were just problems. <laughs> um, our wine-making episode in particular, we found to be... Uh, the wine-making episode is canceled. Yeah, it's canceled completely. It was uh, not up to snuff. And so we have decided today that we are going to be reiterating that process. I do feel the need to call out the listeners because in that episode, or no, in last episode, in the rum episode, Mm. we talked about doing this episode. And I saw it almost one for one of people that listened to the rum episode and people that went and listened to the winemaking episode. No, they did that. So y'all little little gremlins decided to run and listen to that episode. Why would you do that to us? Oh my gosh. Uh, We also decided that we wanted to go ahead and separate these into two episodes Mm -hmm. because really both white and red wine have such major differences that although they can, in summary, be handled in a single episode, we wanted to give time and really let uh, the complexities of these processes stand out. Yeah, and I think when you hear it laid out as white winemaking versus red winemaking, it makes a lot more sense as to why white wines taste the way they do and red wines taste the way that they do. Precisely. So we're going to be talking a bit more about the complexities of the process, It should still be a little bit on the light side, but we're going to be talking about uh, how it's fermented and a lot of little extra things that are done just to either refine or bring out a different character, in some cases flipping the whole flavor on its head, and all the way through the oaking, clarifying, stabilization, and bottling. Yes. Um, And I believe that we also are going to be having a a little bit of a special thing. I have a surprise for Michael at the end. Yeah, um, and I and I must admit I am a little nervous on that front. You'll do great, I'm sure. Oh, I'm sure I will do just fantastic. <laughs> um, so yeah, here we go. Here we go. Here we go. So the first thing to remember with white wine versus red wine, especially, is that when the grapes are harvested, they are crushed and they're pressed but they don't actually allow for the fermentation to happen while in contact with the skins. Yeah. Now, there are some people who are uh, kind of pioneering a very old style that has started to pick up some traction recently. We actually had an episode where we did a tasting of one of these called Orange Wine, where you do allow for the skins to be in contact with the juice during that fermentation process yep with varying levels of success um (laughs) yeah it's a wide variety of quality levels in that little niche field of white wine making at the moment i think our comparison in that episode was that it's the same way that ipas became popular where you just suddenly had some people who are just like we will put all of the hops in yeah and there was no craft to be had exactly But that's kind of the first thing to remember is that there's not going to be as much uh, little to no skin contact whatsoever. So what other things kind of define this process? 
Uh, your notes are so extensive here. It's <laughs> it's actually very impressive. I went a little ham. Uh, yeah. So basically for our white wines, like Michael just said, you want little to no skin contact during this crushing and pressing process. Now, you ha- kind of have two ways that you can do this. You can get the grapes off the stems, whether that be by hand or by machine, and you can press those. You do want to be very careful with this method of pressing because it can leave a lot of, you know, pieces of skin and particulate matter mm-hmm. in the what's called the free run juice and this can lead to off flavors if it ends up going into the fermentation. Mm. So you want to kind of keep as little of these particles in to begin with as possible because that just makes your job as a winemaker a lot easier yeah another method is to put whole clusters in a press and what this does is because you still have the stems attached they kind of help pad out the pressing and they make it actually a lot gentler and they do end up helping with less particulate matter ending up in the free run juice of that press interesting yeah now These two methods as to why you would use either one could probably best be understood in just the style of wine that you're going for. If you have like Chardonnay grapes that are going to be going into, you know, barrel and undergoing malolactic, which we'll be talking about here soon, you might be more okay with some of that particulate matter because that'll add, you know, more complexity to the wine. If you're going for Riesling, let's say, and you just want that pure varietal character of the fruit you're probably going to lean more towards that whole cluster pressed method because less particular matter ends up in the free run juice and it keeps it cleaner overall mm, mm. cleaner is probably a good word to use there so once this happens sometimes well actually uh, this this can happen before as well but sometimes you'll have a short maceration Mm-hmm. And a maceration, if you don't know what that word means, just means soaking in something, essentially. Yeah. Because when you harvest grapes, some of the grapes are going to burst. That's just kind of inevitable. So there's going to be some juice in whatever tank you have your harvested grapes in. And allowing a maceration in that, or again, after you crush the grapes, if you crush the grapes on the skins and leave the skins in for a short amount of time, that can help give more aromatic compounds because like some things from the skins and whatnot are going to leach in again this is probably going to be something not that like an aromatic or a very clean style of wine is going to do Mm. Um, it it can some winemakers do believe particularly with more um, floral heavy wines that it actually does help that part of the wine to have stronger floral aromas interesting so what could you give us an example of some of those types of wines that might employ this more often than than others? Do you mean specifically like aromatic? Yeah. Uh, so Riesling, Gewürztraminer, Viognier would all be aromatic wines. Basically, aromatic white wines are wines that have a very strong nose profile mm. and a very complex nose profile. But I qualify that with... It kind of needs to be from the grape itself because Chardonnay is not an aromatic grape, 
But if you have a barrel fermented, barrel aged, yeah. malolactic Chardonnay, that can be a very complex nose on that wine, but it's not from the grape itself. It's from the rest of the processes exactly. that are employed. Okay, so that's a good separation between those types of wines and, and how they might be treated mm-hmm. at this stage of, of fermentation or uh, of preparation. Yeah. Also, you're going to have SO2 or sulfites added mm-hmm. at this stage, depending on the style of wine being made. Again, all of this, pretty much everything I'm going to say, a lot of calls come down to the winemaker and what they're mm-hmm. going for. Obviously, certain things like crushing, fermentation have to happen or else wine doesn't happen. But uh, a, a lot of winemakers will add uh, sulfites at this stage just to protect from oxygenation because, again, Oxygen oxidizes things in wine, and particularly with white wines, you don't want that to happen. That's also part of why you want as little contact with skin and particulate matter from stems and and seeds and whatnot, usually, as possible for white wines, because that can help expedite the oxidation process if you're not careful. Hmm. Um, Also, something to note about macerations, going back to that for a second, they have to be done at a very cool temperature, like below 50 degrees, or else they will start a fermentation. And they're also normally going to be like upwards of 12 hours on like the very high end. Normally, it's more of like a four to six hours kind of thing. Interesting. You're not macerating for a very long time. Because, again, you don't want oxygenation to happen. You can do things like blanket the tank with an inert gas or whatever to help. Yeah, like nitrogen or something like that. Exactly, or argon. Again, you don't want off compounds. Yeah, especially in white wine because most of the time they are so delicate. If you you add anything, it's going to be super present. Exactly. So at this stage, after you've pressed off the free-run juice... You might choose to do another press, and that is the press run. And that's basically where you just get all the remaining juice out. Well, not necessarily all. There is a certain point where the juice will just be so bitter that it's basically unusable. Which is the whole idea behind like wanting to regulate the amount of pressure that you're putting the stuff on. Because if you're getting a lot of stuff out of the skins in particular, Mm -hmm. then it's just going to be this bitter compound and it's going to be awful. Yeah. When I mentioned gentle pressing earlier, I do mean you really need to be gentle, particularly with white wines. Well, it's like that's why they used to like when they were doing um, pressing with feet, you'd still have some form of scaffolding Mm because even just that pressure of a human foot coming down on something is actually too much exactly and i I think this is this is one of those things that you're very happy is no longer a a, a practice (laughs) yes yes. well except in certain port houses certain port houses do still actually foot press they're very rigorously sterile about it though i I promise i will never tell you if that is the case and you're trying a port Uh, yeah yeah. (laughs) you you can do that research on your own yeah Um, but the press runs are basically going to they're more of a blending tool, usually. Sometimes a winemaker will send them off for a separate wine altogether. But normally, if you do use your press runs, you use it to blend back in to the base wine to add some complexity or to give the wine a little bit more of a backbone if it's mm-hmm. a little thin. Something like that. Because these presses get more and more... um you're drawing out more stuff. So more tannins, more proteins and stuff are going to end up in that. So it's going to have more flavor, potentially also more off flavors. So that's the balance that you have to play with your press runs. 
Gotcha. So if it is a blending tool at that point, then that actually gives them a lot of control Yeah. since they are able to say, okay, so here's our base. Mm-hmm. And then these are basically seasonings from, yes. from that point forward. Precisely. Yeah. Interesting. So once we do have though, all of our presses, we've, mm-hmm. we've added in our sulfur compounds. If you're doing a maceration, you've completed your maceration. And what would be uh, the next step? So you're going to basically just let this settle. Uh, well, I take that back. You're going to undergo some kind of clarification. If you're in a very high volume context, there might be some mechanized process like a centrifuge or something to expedite this. Mm-hmm. But often it's just settling, which is where you just let things settle literally by gravity out of the solution what sort of device would they they use in order to do that do they like let it out of the bottom or what what, how are they getting it out normally you're going to do racking once all of these solids settle out of the solution because the point of this step is as i said you want clear juice yeah so once all of those solids or as many solids as you can are out of the wine normally as I said, racking will probably be used. Racking is the process of pumping something from one tank or storage vessel. That could be a barrel. It could be a stainless steel tank. It could be an amphora. It could be a, one of the concrete eggs that are used into another storage tank or fermentation vessel in this case. So you pump until you hit that level of sediment and then you stop and you just leave it. Well, you don't leave it in the tank, obviously, but you know you don't transfer it over into the yeah. next tank. So that's how you get your clarified juice into a vessel where it can undergo its fermentation. Awesome. So, so once we have this now very clear liquid, we have this blend. At would it be blended at this stage, or or when would they actually start that blending process? Um, this is something that I I don't even know if I can give you a general rule on because, like, let's look at champagne. Champagne, you blend after all your fermentations are done, and even after some extensive aging has been done in certain houses. Other winemakers might blend now before fermentation. Other winemakers might blend immediately after fermentation. So there's really no... um, There's not a hard, fast rule for this sort of thing, because it can happen at any stage. Yeah, and again, this is assuming that you're blending at all. Mm. So we have this, this now clear liquid... And this is now ripe for fermentation. It's ready mm-hmm. to go. Yeah. What would be our, our kind of next step? So at this point, as with all of these <laughs> steps, what are you going for? Are you going to let the wild yeast ferment? If that's the case, you just wait until the wine starts fermenting. Basically, you get it to a temperature where that can happen, which is around 50 degrees. So um, just for the record, white wines are often fermented at a lower temperature than red wines are. Mm-hmm. We'll get into that probably more in the red episode. Heat draws out more stuff, which is what you want from a red wine normally. The winemaking parameters for white wine, though, temperature-wise, are probably going to be in your 12 to 22 degrees Celsius, or that roughly equals out to 50 to 70 degrees Fahrenheit mm. for your white wine fermentations. So the yeast are going to start if they're wild yeast at some you know point in there hopefully you know what yeast strains are present if you are using wild yeast and those are just kind of ambiently in Mm -hmm. the air in the grapes already if you're not using wild yeast so we already added sulfites right sulfites will inhibit a lot of wild yeast from being able to do a fermentation 
then you can inoculate if you are using an industrial strain right before this fermentation. Mm. So that will be where you get your lab strains into the juice to start the fermentation. So once we've decided on a yeast, then we're also deciding on a temperature. Can you give me any any more detail on that? Like which types of wine might you want more of those complexities Mm -hmm. getting into the wine as opposed to others where you really do need to keep it as delicate as possible? Yeah. So in very short summary, the higher you go in temperature for a fermentation, the more you're going to have complexity develop and the more you're going to draw out of what's being fermented in terms of aroma compounds, flavor compounds and whatnot. So if you're going for something that's supposed to be very delicate and light, you're going to run on the cooler end Mm. of the spectrum for fermentation. If you're going for something meant to be richer and more hearty as a wine, you're going to go higher. So like a Chardonnay could stand up to having a little bit more of that complexity Mm -hmm. shining through. Yeah. Well, actually, uh, let's go with Chardonnay. So if we go to Chablis, right, where the wines are supposed to be... They're cool climate grapes, for one thing, so they're already going to be like very high acid, not a whole ton of you know fruit expression, not in a low-quality way, but it's not going to be like you're running the full gamut of green fruit all the way up to tropical fruit like you'll get out of California, right? Yeah. So for these wines, you're probably going to want to run a cooler fermentation because you're looking for that crisp, clean, very like almost austere in certain parts of Chablis Chardonnay mm. expression. You don't want all that complexity. However, if you're in Napa Valley and you're making a Chardonnay that's going to go into a barrel and undergo malolactic fermentation, then you probably do want to run a higher temperature so you are drawing out as many compounds and flavor aromas as you can to stand up to the more intensive winemaking yeah. you're going to be doing down the road. Especially if you're using like a new oak or something like that where yeah. you're getting all that vanilla, you really do need that kind of punchy flavor Mm -hmm. in order to make those complexities shine exactly interesting so okay that's that's a really good explanation i think do you know um like riesling gewurztraminer i'm guessing because those are also from colder climates those Mm -hmm. would also probably undergo lower temperature fermentation riesling yeah gewurztraminer i actually don't know because gewurztraminer is an interesting grape in that it tends to be a little bit lower than Riesling and Chardonnay on the acid spectrum, and it tends to be pretty high in alcohol. And Gruschemeiner also tends to have a very um, almost like ginger and exotic spice character to its flavor profile. So don't quote me on this. I am not a winemaker, but in my head, you might actually want to run in the middle to maybe even some of the higher temperatures to kind of balance out how harsh that alcohol can be. That makes sense. In Garouge demeanor. But again, I don't quote me on that. That's just kind of my logic on it. Uh, if there are any Gewurztraminer experienced winemakers that listen to our podcast, first of all, sorry. Uh, second of all, <laughs> we are we are so sorry. We're so sorry for our podcast. I'm, and actually, I love our podcast. I'm not even going to lie. Um, hopefully you do as, as well. <laughs> hopefully you do as well. Tell your winemaking friends. Perspective, Gewurz demeanor wine experienced <laughs> yeah. winemaker. Yeah. Um, but please do uh, DM us and let us let us know uh, your thoughts on that. Yep. So after fermentation. So after fermentation. Yeah. Basically, uh, just going to go through another round of settling and clarification. You are trying to get it prepared to go into whatever storage vessel. 
Okay, so at it's this point, we're we're going to be figuring out whether or not we're going to be enhancing or changing mm-hmm. or or preserving the flavor that's come out at this point. Yeah, and also you want to. We're going to talk about lees in a second. If you want to do lees aging, this is where you're going to want to kind of separate your fine lees from your gross lees, mm-hmm. and we'll get again into that in a second. What those two terms mean. Your primary storage vessels are going to be the big stainless steel tanks that you've probably seen or obviously barrels. We do now have the concrete eggs. You might have seen them before. They're pretty cool, actually. They're really cool looking. Um, I do get a little bit of flavor off of those, I've noticed. Yeah, well, so this is probably its own episode, but concrete eggs actually do allow for a little bit of microoxygenation, and they tend to be lined with resin. Uh, and the reason they allow for microoxygenation is because um, oxygen can get caught in the pockets of concrete because, like, you know, it looks smooth, but if you put it under a microscope, it's porous a little bit. Yeah. So you are going to have a little bit of oxygen, but it's not going to be like a barrel. So it, it does kind of impart its own flavor. A lot of people also think that the concrete eggs impart a bit of a more mineral character to a wine, which I personally agree with. Yeah. Don't have the chemistry to back that up, but it's just something I have kind of noticed. But, you know, power suggestion might I be get to blame for that. But uh, we also have clay amphoras are making a comeback because amphoras are also somewhat porous to oxygen. They have to be made in a very specific way now to avoid the risk of like shattering and stuff that yeah. you used to see with clay. But uh, And for those of you who didn't uh, listen to our wine history episodes, An amphora is like a large clay vessel with a stem and typically two Mm -hmm. very large handles historically. Uh, I'm not sure how they are made currently, though. They they tend to be more kind of like a a basin, I guess, at least from my understanding, uh, with a lid and everything. But uh, again, these are probably their own topics for their own episodes. Yeah. Don't want to get too bogged down in them, but... These are your primary wines. And again, stainless steel and oak are going to be the vast majority of white wines at the moment, how they're going to be stored or fermented. You can also ferment in uh, actually any of those that we just listed. So what are some other... So now we we have these different styles mm-hmm. and we, we know that oak is going to impart either spice or vanilla. And there's also different types of oak. You can mm-hmm. either do uh, your French oak or your American. American. Yeah. Both have very different things that they're imparting, yeah. uh, partially because of just the way that they're constructed. New oak, old oak. Yeah, new oak, old oak. The size um, of the barrel. The size of the barrel actually is very important. Yeah. The smaller the barrel, the more flavor is going to be imparted, both from oxygen interplay and the barrel itself, because when you think about it in terms of the ratio of your surface volume of the wine to contact with the barrel the smaller the barrel the more contact the wine itself has with oak so precisely the more it's going to draw out and let's say um in alsace they actually a lot of producers have these humongous gigantic barrels that have been used for decades and they're so old that they actually have tartrate deposits from oh, wine no that kind of help seal the barrel from oxygen. So they're that like is fascinating. close to neutral, but they still add just enough. They allow just enough oxygen to just kind of enhance texture and whatnot in the wine. Uh, that's something oxygen will do is it'll enhance the texture of a wine. 
Interesting. So that's another reason you might want something in barrel is if you're going for a big bombastic, I know we keep saying it, but you know, oak Chardonnay, you want a rounder body to handle all of that dense flavor Yeah. versus a really high acid Riesling from Germany, a cold area of Germany that's meant to be more zippy and, you know, kind of bracing on your palate. Yeah. And then there's also that difference between the French and the American oak where just a subtle difference in construction being split as opposed to being sawed Mm -hmm. ends up creating a difference in the intensity of it. Because with a French barrel, you'll get a little bit more spice, Mm -hmm. but you're not going to get nearly as much of that just bold, oaky flavor. Because when you saw them apart, it, uh, it opens up the cell walls as opposed to when you split them. It actually, the cell walls will actually remain mostly intact. Yeah. That's just a really cool tidbit um, yeah. that, that I love about uh, the wine aging process. Yeah. So that's kind of your oak. Your stainless steel is inert. So if you're storing in stainless steel, really what you're doing, well, for one thing, you're probably not going to age for as long as you would in a barrel. No. Uh, barrels are typically for more extensive styles of aging. With a stainless steel, though, wine kind of needs to integrate into itself Mm -hmm. after fermentation and again if you are clarifying at this stage which most winemakers will do you know you're trying to get all these things to settle out and whatnot and that takes time obviously you need to wait for that to fully happen and then after that happens you can rack it off into another stainless steel tank and just kind of let it mellow out for a while because it needs to after fermentation it's like soup it's, it's good soup. soup. <laughs> <laughs> so it's always better the next day. <laughs> yeah. So the next two things are very much optional and are very style specific. Malactic conversion or malactic fermentation is the first one. Uh, people say malactic fermentation is kind of the official term. It is technically speaking not a fermentation. It is a conversion mm-hmm. because it's bacteria converting the malic acid in wine into lactic acid precisely so technically it's not yeast consuming sugar which is what again technically 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 speaking constitutes a fermentation so some people will say malactic conversion just to be more scientifically accurate anyway enough of my nerdiness no 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 no, no. we love the nerdiness (laughs) what malactic conversion does uh, from a chemistry standpoint it will lower the overall acidity Because obviously, you know, some other byproducts are going to come out of that conversion as well. So the overall acidity will be lowered. It will raise the pH of the wine. The bacteria that primarily does this is Aneococcus oeni. There are also some other lactobacillus strains that will help in this process, but that's the primary one. And what it does in terms of the impact on the wine style is it will add kind of some creamy, buttery... Uh, sometimes yogurty notes into a wine. Lactic acid, if you don't know, is what's in dairy products. So think dairy. Yeah. Um, maybe not like cheese dairy, but your more cream-based dairy products or your milk-based dairy products. Yeah. And which again, I guess actually cream or a cheese would be a milk-based dairy product. But, yeah, you but know. Think, think more like the liquid stuff. Yes. So it, it's yeah. the creamy, it's the, it's the buttery. Going back to Chardonnay, which is 
again, they do everything to Chardonnay. I think that's yeah. why it's it's so easy to use it's, as an it's example. It's the chameleon grape, right? Yeah. So it's it's a good example for a lot of these because you can give an example of how it could be treated in two different ways to achieve two different things from the same grape. Precisely. So if it doesn't undergo malolactic fermentation, and let's just say for the point of argument that it also hasn't been barrel aged, you'll just get more of that apple, mm-hmm. a little bit more of that like uh, sometimes like an orangey or a tangerine. Whereas if you have it undergo the malolactic conversion, then you are going to be getting that buttery stuff. Yeah. So, well, on that point, it is possible this has become more of a thing in recent decades is a partial conversion where you allow these bacteria to eat a certain portion of the malic acid and then you either add sulfites or you lower the temperature below where the bacteria are able to function Mm. and then you let them go dormant settle out a solution filter you're probably going to be sterile filtering to get to the size of pores that bacteria can't get through in that case but if you're doing this it it means that you want some of that yogurty buttery aroma but you still want to maintain a little bit of that zippiness from the malic acid yeah because again malic acid on the tongue is a little sharper than lactic acid precisely Also, just a byproduct of, well, not necessarily a byproduct, but a, um, an outcome, I guess, of a full malolactic conversion is it actually does help with the stability of the wine after it's bottled. Because if you don't sterile filter and you have not done a malolactic conversion, there is the risk that the bacteria can reactivate if they get above a certain temperature mm-hmm. and do a malolactic conversion in the bottle and you don't want that to happen yeah because that's not what you're trying to sell people precisely well and also you know it can end up being really chaotic yeah and, if that happens yeah. in a bottle as opposed to a controlled facility exactly you're going to have unregulated temperatures like a lot of things can go wrong in that bottle if a second conversion or if a conversion starts to happen if one never happened in the winery so that's just something that will help is it can help with stability in the long run overall. Now, that's not the only thing, though, that you can do with the wine in order to kind of give it more creaminess mm-hmm. or, or even toast notes. Going into our next section about uh, lees. All right. So the lees. Lees are essentially the yeast. You just think of it that way. And I mentioned earlier gross lees and fine lees. So your gross lees are going to be a kind of thicker part of the sediment that will settle out of the wine solution or be filtered out of the wine solution if you're filtering that can be understood as um just that it's like sediment and typically there will also be some other particulate matter in there that can lead to off aroma compounds so you don't really want that if you're going to rest on the lees what you want are your fine lees and that is just the you know yeast themselves Mm. and you can see them like they are big enough to see after you know you've racked them off the grossleys they will settle out a solution eventually as well and what you can do is you can age the wine for a portion of time on these lees and that can be in stainless steel that can be in oak both are done you can also if you want to um, stir the lees periodically while the wine is aging it's up to the winemaker. They can do it multiple times a day. They can do it once a week. Like it just kind of depends on what you're going for. Regardless, um, what you're going to get out of this process 
is well for one thing it's going to help again with body it's going to impart a little bit more body and texture to the wine lees are thought to also kind of be a bit of a preservative not anything like you know alcohol and acid and sugar and tannins are going to be but lees are thought to kind of be a little bit helpful in preventing too much oxygenation from happening should the wine be exposed to oxygen a little bit more stable in that regard as far as the taste goes they give bready and doughy notes and this comes from the process of what's called yeast autolysis so these yeasts are dead yeah right they've already fermented they've the done sugar. their job they're they're done so you're basically um <laughs> they're they're carcasses yeah <laughs> you can think of them that way this is white wine dead bodies <laughs> yeah so the bready and doughy aromas come from the process of autolysis which is where these yeasts start to break down from a like decompositional aspect in the wine solution doesn't sound too great but the way that you know microorganisms decompose is very different than the way humans decompose Precisely. so you know it's not it's not gross it's not as gross as it sounds to say decompose these chemicals though that they'll release into the wine solution as they are breaking down will give those bready pastry aromas again think of what yeast goes into bread bread dough pastries um stuff like that and so you get similar whiffs of that yeah. from lees now, again, like I said, how intensive you are with your lees, stirring in particular, will really determine how much of that impact gets into the final wine. If you don't stir as much, you're not going to get as much out of it. If you stir a lot more, you're going to get a lot more out of it. This is one of those things that a lot of people I've noticed, especially when they're trying champagne for the first time, are surprised by. Mm -hmm. Because people will get what they call champagne and just sparkling wines from different parts of the world. And those typically are going to have more of that sharp flavor. It's going to be yeah. very zippy, especially if you're getting like a Prosecco. It's also going to be a little sweet. Mm -hmm. But with champagne in particular, they love having yeah. those lees in there. And so you end up getting these beautiful toasty notes mm -hmm. inside of the champagnes themselves. Yeah. They can smell like straight up pastries yeah. sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Pastries and blue cheese, my yeah. favorite. <laughs> Maybe not together, though. Oh, no, together. Precisely. In I, the way I, that I love it. That is Michael's opinion, not mine. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's a, a good point, though, about champagne in particular is known for this because they age very extensively on the leaves mm -hmm. in the bottle. And if we, again, want to talk about the surface area ratio, that's mm -hmm. a very high ratio because they leave a whole portion of sediment in the bottle while it's aging. And if you're aging for years, you're going to get a lot of it. You're going to get out. a lot of it. And so this can really be something that's either done as a simple spice. You know, you're just getting a little bit of that breadiness in in order to kind of give a bit more character to it. Or it can become one of the dominating factors inside of that aroma profile, that flavor profile. Yep. So kind of to close out Lee's, though, uh, if you see Sir Lee, S-U-R space L-I-E, on a bottle, that means it was aged on the Lee's to some degree. So now we've got this thing. It's It's been aged. It's been uh, stored for as long as it can be or however long that the winemaker uh, needs it to be in order to give it that character. We've also decided whether or not we have aged it on lees or not. Mm -hmm. What would be one of the next things, the next step to get us to that bottle? So final clarifying is going to be a big thing here. Now, 
some of these can be kind of done, as I said already, at several points throughout the winemaking process, but here's kind of the list of clarifying methods. We have sedimentation, which is what I was talking about earlier with settling, which is where you just let the particulate matter settle out of solution. We talked about racking, but again, racking is pumping from one vessel to another up to, or well, down to where that sediment starts and then you stop and that's how you get the sediment out that way and this can also be done with a centrifuge where you're just basically spinning the liquid allowing for the inertia to carry all of those larger Mm -hmm. pieces out yes that's typically more of a high volume producer thing because obviously centrifuges are very expensive and also there's some criticism about if they strip too much out of the solution as well because it's a little too vigorous yeah we have filtering, which I've mentioned at a couple of points. Don't think of like, you know, a, a coffee filter, although, you know, there are certain filtering methods that might resemble that a little bit more. In general, filters for wine are huge apparatuses. Mm-hmm. Now, these can be a rough filter where, you know, you're basically just removing like the grossly's and the absolute biggest particles that maybe would like that would cloudy. make the wine look yeah cloudy or hazy mm-hmm. uh, in bottle just to make the wine appear clear. This can be done all the way down to a sterile filter, which is where the filter, as I've said previously, is so fine that it can filter out microorganisms. Which is fantastic, Yes, by the way. As with the centrifuge debate, sterile filtering is thought to strip out a little too much of mm-hmm. a wine because some particles that are larger than bacteria are going to give more aroma and flavor to mm-hmm. a wine so you know again it's the style it's how mass volume mass market is this that you're going for we also have fining now this fining, one is an interesting one this is an interesting one it's basically the process of stirring in an agent of some kind where it's going to bond to certain particles in the wine you're going to have a bond to that so that way the particles then become large enough to filter out or settle out of the solution. So commonly what are used for this is egg whites, gelatin, and bentonite clay. And you did hear him correctly. He said egg whites. Yes. Uh, so something to note, not all wine is vegan. A lot of producers are now marking their wines as vegan if they are not using non-vegan finding agents or if they're not finding at all because you don't have to find but it is good for getting more stuff out that particularly could help with your shelf stability from heat spikes that can cause proteins to bind together which can make a hazy wine Mm -hmm. so and just so that you know you can look up whether or not a wine is vegan online Mm -hmm. there are several sites uh just a quick is this wine vegan on Google? You'll be able to find those sites when you're making your choice if that is something that you have a concern with. Yeah. So moving on from stabilization uh, of your proteins, stabilization as a whole, you want your product to be shelf stable, obviously. Mm-hmm. So what you're doing is ensuring the quality of the wine in the bottle, especially especially for your age-worthy wines. Some various kinds of things you want to stabilize uh, could be tartrates. Uh, If you have tartrates in the wine, if the wine gets too cold, they can solidify and form what's called tartrate crystals. 
they are perfectly safe for consumption. They don't harm you in any way. But some people just don't like the look of them. Some people don't know what they are, so they think the wine is faulty. Oh, I've had several people message me and be like, hey, uh, is this wine still good? And it's yeah. just like, more than likely, that's just tartrate crystals. And yeah. It, perfectly if, fine. If it looks like salt, yeah, that's basically what tartrate crystals look like in wine. And of course, they're going to be the color because they can occur in red or white wine. They're going to be the color of the wine itself. You want to protect from oxygenation. That, again, is going to be done with sulfites. Uh Sulfites are also sometimes called metabisulfite. There are different kinds of metabisulfite. There's potassium, there's sodium metabisulfite. But normally you're just going to see SO2 or sulfites. Mm -hmm. And that's your main thing with oxygenation that you want to use to protect against that. You have your microbiological stability. Again, sterile filter if you're really concerned about it. And sediment. Sediment is something that whatever method of clarifying you're doing will help. Some wines are supposed to have sediment, like vintage ports are a very famous example. They are expected to throw a very thick deposit. A lot of red wines in general will throw, particularly your highly tannic reds, yeah. will throw some kind of deposit. That's just from the process of the tannins polymerizing and becoming large enough to fall out of solution to the bottom of the bottle. So that's stabilization. And then it goes to bottling. Fairly self-explanatory. Yeah. They throw it in a bottle mm -hmm. and it'll either be corked or it'll have a screw cap essentially you have some weird closures like glass closures but i've had literally one bottle in my entire life have a glass closure so yeah yeah there's not much else to say about bottling um, obviously if you have a clear bottle be careful about where you're storing it particularly i mean obviously with all your wine be careful where you're storing it but i'm always a little leery of clear bottles just in general because i don't know how they were stored in the warehouse yeah you know you can walk into a wine shop and in some cases even the way that they shelve it, yeah. it, it'll be exposed to sunlight. Yeah. You don't want that. You yeah. want you want your bottles to be darker in yeah. color from green to brown normally. Exactly. And that can produce really off flavors that taste like construction paper. Yeah. You don't – yeah, light or uh, UV damage is a very real thing in wines. Yeah. That's why darker bottles help filter that out. Closing out on winemaking, uh, just a very quick thing on what cheaper – mass market wines tend to do versus what your quality producers tend to do. So for your cheap wines, you're going to have typically higher yields in your vineyard. This varies based off the grape varietal. However, the general principle is the higher your yields, the lower quality the grapes are going to be Precisely. because the plants are putting more energy into more clusters versus more energy into fewer clusters leading to more concentrated grapes. Exactly. So you're going to get uh, essentially watered down grapes from really high yields. Yeah. But if you need a mass market wine like Barefoot or Cupcake that is producing, I don't even know how many millions of bottles a year. Well, I don't know if it's millions, but at least hundreds of thousands of bottles a year. You need that volume Precisely. to put out that much product. And then if they wanted to have a different flavor, then they just do things. Yeah. <laughs> the, the lab magic. <laughs> the lab magic. Our economy of resources is done post-fermentation. Exactly. Typically for these kinds of wines, little to no oak. If there is oak at like the very bottom price points, it's typically going to be oak chips or oak staves. These are basically, they're trying to be barrels, but they're not barrels. And they will impart oak flavor, but typically it'll taste a little out of sorts. 
compared mm. to what will actually come from a barrel. Yeah. Because you're getting all that spice with none of the oxygenation that kind of helps round things out. Precisely. So it can taste a little jagged, for lack of a better way of putting it. Oak chips and specifically oak powder are some of my least favorite things to discover inside of a wine. Exactly. Moving on, we have uh, chemical adjustments. So this can be acidification, post-fermentation, sweetening, capitalization. And these can occur in high-quality wines too, don't get me wrong. But at the lower price points, there's a lot of adjustments made yeah. normally particularly for the purpose of homogenization of vast amounts of wine for a consistent product. Precisely. And also, in general, cheaper white wines are going to be sweeter than your higher quality wines. This is something that tends to be very highly driven by market demand. You know, if you get a very cheap Riesling, you can probably expect that it's sweet. That's why a lot of people say they don't like Riesling until they try high quality um, you know, spate lesa or something. Well, spate lesa can be somewhat sweet as well, but uh, a grosses Gewex yeah. from Germany, which is going to be a dry wine and most likely a Riesling. Or if it's being exported to the United States, it's probably a Riesling. And it's it's night and day, you know. Um, so the market likes sweeter wines in the United States. So these mass market producers tend to add some residual sugar to their wines because people like it. For quality wines, for white wines, you're going to want very controlled yields. Um, you're going to pay more attention to what the optimal yield is for that grape type because, again, it does fluctuate between grape types. Some grape types actually handle high yields well. But again, you just want to make sure your plants are putting as much energy in as they possibly can for the best grapes. Um, you're going to want good site selection. That's a really big thing. So you want your vineyard to be in a good spot where it's getting optimal sunlight, optimal um, rain conditions, optimal soil drainage, stuff like that. And that's a very big thing to look for for a quality producer because uh, mass market brands tend to just kind of buy land wherever or source grapes from yeah. uh, wherever you can just grow vast amounts of grapes on large plots of land. But quality producers want to you know hone in on those really good sites so that way they're getting something good in. Barrels were appropriate for quality wines. Obviously, everything we talked about in terms of like barrel size, mm -hmm. the species of oak that is being used for the barrels, very big factors in this process. Lees stirring where appropriate. A lot of um, mass market wines will not see any lees stirring. It's just another step in the process that they'll have to account for. And a lot of those producers don't want to worry about that. And then to close out our quality wines, we have age-worthy wines. Yes. White wines in general, not meant to age like red wines. And actually, most wines on the market overall, regardless of whether they're white or red, are not fit for like cellaring, like very serious yeah. cellaring. More than three years for most red wines, not really feasible. Yeah. Um, but some wines are specifically crafted to do this. And some grapes like Riesling, German Riesling in particular, tends to do decently well with some aging. Now, what helps with this is high acid and or sugar. Acid and sugar, well, sugar in high enough quantities are good preservatives for the wine itself and lead to good aging. You want very concentrated primary fruit characteristics or just primary characteristics in general because those are going to change and potentially fall out 
as the wine ages. Your fruit will typically get more dried in character. Your florals will kind of just fall out altogether as the Mm -hmm. wine ages. But if the wine has enough of that base dense fruit character you can get to begin with stuff yeah because it'll develop into more complex dried aromas and, and flavors and the color also changes too you get yes, more of more like brown. an amber yeah yeah, yeah brown yeah amber i don't brown. say brown as in you know gross but bra- <laughs> as, brown as gross. the color gets more brown or orange orange or brown um so like you said it goes from pale lemon to amber that's more brown being added into that color right yeah. from an art perspective from an artistic perspective. So that's what you can yeah. look for. If you have a wine that kind of meets all those characteristics, it's a better candidate for aging than otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. And again, those are some of my kind of favorites uh, when it comes to white wines, because having like dried apricot inside of a wine, really, uh, it's it's yeah. it's a wonderful experience. Exactly. And it makes actually pairing it with other things. I think that they are tremendously more pairable mm-hmm. with kind of your traditional charcuterie board. So I, I think they're great, but they are also very expensive. Mm-hmm. We also had before we, uh, or is there anything else that you wanted to add about? I was about to move on to my challenge, but if you had something else. Oh, we just wanted to quickly answer uh, a question that we did have. Right. Yes. Um, so somebody asked us about what is ice wine and why is it and all that stuff. So we wanted to just give a very quick summary about it. Essentially, ice wine, the primary difference between it and other forms of, like, especially white wines, you don't typically have a, an ice wine that is going to be red. That's not yeah. a thing. Well, for one thing, it's a dessert wine. It's a dessert wine. So it's a dessert wine. The main difference is that you are allowing the grapes to freeze mm-hmm. before the pressing. Yeah. You have a lot of these components that are dissolved into the water within the grapes themselves. So the water is going to freeze and push those components out, including the sugars and different aromatic compounds. Mm-hmm. So when they press it, it results in a much sweeter free run. Yeah. And so that's going to allow it to have not only more potential to ferment, but a lot sweeter flavor. So yeah, uh, I think that's a good overview. If you want to know more about this, though, we did do a dessert wine episode we did. a while back. I think it holds up pretty well. It was after we got good. <laughs> uh, <laughs> good new scrub. <laughs> so, so yeah, if you have more questions about ice wines or sweet wines in general, I would definitely recommend giving that episode a listen. Alrighty. Well, now we are moving on to the section that I am both looking forward to and very intimidated by, but we'll have fun with it. You'll do great, I'm sure. But uh, Gabe has decided to put me through the uh, strain of a blind tasting. I have. Now, the fact that he is not the one doing the blind tasting, considering that he has an actually tested trained palate, I think is ridiculous. But we'll see what happens here. Alrighty, so uh, Gabe has now poured a glass of this white wine into, um, Gabe has now poured this <laughs> glass of white wine, I was about to say, into this glass. This glass of white wine into the glass. Well, I mean, technically. from the glass. You know well, the glass? Well, think about it, because a glass is, no, it's a cup, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Mm, a copa mm, de vino, maybe? A copa de... Oh, oh God. If you poured me copa de vino, <laughs> I, I would literally I toss this glass at you right now. <laughs> I didn't, I promise. Ooh, uh, that is... I mean, I haven't even put it up to my nose yet, and I'm already getting uh, aromas off of it. So I don't know if we fully said what this is supposed to accomplish. So my my thought in this... I literally came up with this as Michael was driving over, was to see if we could give you an example of 
why these different winemaking practices matter, you know, steel versus oak and stuff like that, because it does impact the flavor. So I was curious to see if Michael could maybe pick apart some of what he thought happened in the winery. Yeah, absolutely. I do know the wine itself. I actually don't know fully how this wine was made. So we're also going to be relying off of my knowledge. In this. So this is a guessing game either way. Only wrong answers from here on out. <laughs> only wrong answers. <laughs> There's only wrong questions and wrong answers on yes. this podcast. Yes. Yeah, let's uh let's dive into this though. Um it's a pale hay color. So at the at the very least we we know that this is uh I would say this is a medium. Let me medium let me actually hay. hold it up to something white cuz the the color itself is pretty pretty consistent throughout the entire thing yeah yeah no you're right but i wouldn't put this on the same level as uh as like a chardonnay or yeah um anything like that or at least like a barrel aged chardonnay it's i not, still not I, I still haven't even gotten this anywhere near my nose and i'm i'm just getting so much of this <laughs> okay so it's it's slightly savory it's very citrusy that's to be expected a little bit of toast I want to say, or am I, am I smelling something else here? Um, Mm-mm, no, no, not toast. no toast. There's a little bit of a spice characteristic, almost reminiscent of what you would find in Garouche demeanor, kind of like that gingery yeah. on that spectrum. But I would not attribute that to Oak personally. No, I think Cause it's missing any baking spice or any woody yeah. character. Well, no, and it's, it's a kind of a very sharp smell. Let me see how this rests on the tongue. Oh, yeah. Well, this is good. Yeah. Wait, is this Chardonnay? How did you... <laughs> well... How did you know that? <laughs> yes, yes. Citrus savory, the color. But, but who knows Chardonnay? People who had to do 50 uh, wines per tasting. I, fair enough. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, let me go grab the bottle then. Do you want to give more tasting note? Yeah. No, let's let's take a, take a look. Because it's also... It's a little heavy on the tongue. Oh, my God. <laughs> I can't believe you got that. I can't believe I got that actually. <laughs> yeah, no, uh because it was it was resting a little heavy on the tongue mm-hmm. and despite the fact that it is a white wine and I would like I I can tell that it's not like your your aromatic but it's it's bold. It's, it's very bold. Well, it's also rich. I was I was about to say I I need to retract bold. I would say rich because yeah. it's not quite in your face yeah. like a bold wine but it, it's rich yeah. but it is so rich and i don't know how like it is very citrusy like even now my mouth is just watering off of it what kind of citrus i would say grapefruit personally yeah and lemon obviously but you know i would say it leans more in that grapefruit category like a ruby red yeah let me munch on it a little bit crunch crunch Michael, Michael, <laughs> all of my, don't, don't all you of do my, it. All of my awful mouth noises that uh, that Gabe has to remove during his editing. <laughs> this is um, this wine's a little hot. This is at fourteen point one. Apparently, yeah. like as soon as it hits the back of my tongue, I yeah, can just you, feel you, it's, it's, it's it's heat. Yeah, it's there. But I think it the the fruit is concentrated enough to where it it kind of it remains in balance. It doesn't feel out of balance. Yeah, completely. And I think that also like just the heaviness of it allows for it to feel less um less abrasive. Like I I wouldn't I wouldn't say that this is the smoothest wine, mm-hmm. but it's not getting into the territory where it feels uh, abrasive. Yeah. So for those of you who don't know, I just uh, I pulled this up. 
Chardonnay is a hybrid grape. It is Saval and Chardonnay. Saval is an American-French hybrid. That's grape. fantastic. This came from 53rd Vineyards, a winery that's only about 40 minutes from us, actually. No kidding. Yeah. Oh, wait a minute. I, I think you sent me a picture of this building when yeah. you visited it. It was either in the climate episode or the previous winemaking episode. We mentioned them very briefly. I still need to take you there. But yeah, so this is their Chardonnay. And I think it's fantastic. Yeah, I, I really like this wine a lot. Really shows the character of Chardonnay. As I was just sitting here tasting it, it was just like it. it this is exemplary of what this should taste like. Mm-hmm, yeah, um, I would definitely say, of course, at that point. Uh, so stainless steel. This was not aged in oak. This was mm-hmm. not aged in concrete. This was preserved as much as possible in order to keep those citrusy components together. Yeah. Uh, no surly aging. No. So there's there's not any of that breadiness. There's not any of that creaminess. No malolactic fermentation whatsoever. This is a very clean, citrusy, zippy wine. Yeah. Again, the point of this was kind of to just show you guys how this does impact wine style. It's not fluff. You yeah. Know. This is also definitely not an orange wine. So. No, no, it is not. <laughs> oh, God. I-, I need to have that orange wine again. It was so interesting. The Wildcat? Yeah. I wonder. I don't know if they... Well, I'm, they're probably going to do it again, I'm sure. I mean, they need to. Yeah. Shout out to Stinson Vineyards. Yeah. This is cool. Yeah. Uh, so if you guys have any more questions about the white wine making process or any of its deviations, if you have more questions about ice wine, we did actually have an episode on orange wine if you wanted to go and listen to that, mm-hmm. if you did have questions about that. But please shoot us a DM. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at LaidBackLush. We would love to hear from you as well as any feedback you have on the show very tastefully and thoughtfully and carefully made. And stop listening to the old episode, you and gremlins. D- don't do it. Just stop. <laughs> like, I mean, have it on in the background so that no, like we no, can don't have... No, do that. No, no. So we can have oh, the listens. It, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Game. You know, yeah. it, like engagement, we need that. <laughs> uh, but just, you know, don't or just listen, listen to this episode on repeat. On repeat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or, or or my favorite episode. Uh, well, actually, I have to reevaluate my favorite episodes now because I really liked the Roman history mm-hmm. portion of the wine history. Yeah, that was cool. Uh, but anyways, please do follow us. Please reach out to us. Um, we are going to be returning next week in order to talk about red wine. Yeah. Do we want to fit rosé into that, do you think? Because rosé is like, it's not quite enough. Like, it has enough in common with red wine making to where I don't think it really should be a standalone episode. But it is, it's distinct. It's distinct, and it has a distinct flavor. Yeah, yeah no, rosé all day. Let's do it. Also, I'm really sorry. I'm looking at the time of a recording, and uh, we said this would be a short episode, and it's not. Oh, no. this No. <laughs> I, I, when I looked at your notes, I was just like, there's no way this is going to be short. But, you know, I'm let's, sorry. No, I don't like be the sorry. information. No, it was good. It was good. And I uh, I think that, uh, yeah, no, I think it's good. It's good. <laughs> it's good. It's fine. It's cool. It's fine, It's Gabe. cool, cool, cool. <laughs> no, I'm fine. No, it's good. It's good that it goes for an hour and 15 minutes. It's It's fine. You're the one that has to edit it. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I, I might be. Uh, I might be willing to to shoulder some of that burden <laughs> eventually. eventually. Um, <laughs> anyways, uh, thank you guys so much for listening. As always, I have been Michael. I have been Gabe. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>